No, they had what they informally called cadaver stealing programs. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Hey, Audrey. Hey, Elliot. Do you know what season it is? Uh, I don't know that I could even guess what sort of season you're going to tell me it is, but I mean, I know what what the weather is outside. Yes, it is snowy and cold. Mm -hmm. It is technically carnival season. It is carnival season. More importantly, it is Monster Jam season. You know what? I think if you believed hard enough, Mm -hmm. every season could be Monster Jam season. It's true. It's It's a lifestyle. I don't know that it's a season. It's a lifestyle. It, It is kind of a lifestyle. I have recently purchased tickets for myself and our child mm-hmm. to go see Monster Jam yes. in the near future. Uh-huh. I know what you're thinking. Monster Jam in this Omicronomy, but <laughs> <laughs> after being vaccinated and boosted, I'm like, you know what? It's going to be a lot of people, but mm-hmm. I'm thinking if we can keep our distance, vaccine boost. If, if, if we are getting vaxxed and boosted, what for if not? To go see monster trucks jump other trucks and light themselves on fire and crash into one another. I mean, like, come on. I can think of a few things that I would get vaxxed and boosted for ahead of Monster Jam. But listen, this, this, this actually could work. This could be a public health campaign. Monster vaxxed. Monster Jam. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work, actually. Vaxxed and boosted. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> Pay for the whole CBL, only need the edge. <laughs> Is that what it says? I feel like canonically it should, even if it doesn't. It's a new tagline of this podcast, too. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, you know, I'm very excited for the two of you and more excited that I get a full afternoon off and not having to go to Monster Jam. Speaking of Monster Jams, do you want to talk about this week's hero? Oh, Smooth transition. Yep, yep. It's definitely related and absolutely a tie-in. There will be a callback at the end. We will not forget. The the inventor of the Monster Jam himself. (laughs) The founding father, if you will. (laughs) Of the Monster Jam. Yeah, Audrey, who is this week's jam and hero? This week's hero is Benjamin Franklin. What do you know about Benjamin Franklin? Well, I know he is considered a founding father, Mm -hmm. but he is the only founding father to ever make a guest appearance on The Office. He wasn't a president, but he's on our money and he invented electricity. That's about that's about all I know about Benjamin Franklin. Okay, let's I'm going to list a couple things to get them out of the way, because we're not going to talk about the things everybody knows. You forgot to mention bifocals. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bifocals is like big middle school trivia there. Yeah. Poor Richard's Almanac. Mm-hmm. You did mention the $100 bill, founding father, um, electricity, map making. He was very into map making. And Let's be clear. I, I know Benjamin Franklin didn't actually invent electricity, just for all of you who are like screaming at the podcast right now. <laughs> yes. He, he harnessed he, the power <laughs> of electricity. 
Yes, and to make the very first, very inefficient, very short-lived uh, key-based light bulb, uh, according to the apocryphal story. I mean, my notes say electricity bullshit. So. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Vibe. Yeah, and he was a diplomat. He lived in Europe, Paris, in England as well, uh, lots all over the place for a lot of his life. So we're we're not going to talk about that. Yeah, he was a big diplomat for America in the early days while everybody else was fighting in the mud and George Washington was getting frostbite crossing the Delaware. He was hanging out in Paris just carousing, eating cheese and drinking wine at parties. Something like that. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so that's the gist. That's what people know. This Benjamin Franklin is another one of our heroes. I would consider him a heavy hitter. Tons of books docu-series, articles, whatever. If people are really interested in the like heart of his story, the meat of it, they can find it. This is not the podcast for that. This is the lesser known legacies. So okay. uh, we're going to get out of the way some of, some of the real life bad behavior that we're not going to dig into too much. The primary one being that like most founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin enslaved people. We're not going to talk about his enslavement of people. He did later um, free the people he had enslaved and went on anti-slavery campaigns toward the end of his life. But for the vast majority of his life, he enslaved people. And that sucks. Dude sucks. We're just not going to dig into that. We're going to talk about how he's kind of a weird dude. We're going to talk about the weird stuff. This is a this guy has weird things. The baseline levels of shittiness that let you be part of writing founding documents that are founded on all men being created equal while simultaneously owning some men and women and children and denying them all those rights. Yes. Baseline level of shittiness inherent in the writing and uh, founding of the Constitution and the country. Got it. There we go. Yes. Okay. So let's dig in. Born January 17th, 1706. Which is like 316 years ago. It doesn't seem like that long. It doesn't seem like it should be that long ago. Yeah, it's funny you say that because um, even back before the late, great Betty White passed on to the comedy club in the sky, um, I had seen this really cool uh, Twitter thread by... Uh, person named Jelena War, who suggested that we actually use the unit of Betty White's lifetime, which was uh, just short of 100 years, to, to understand like how close some of our history is. She, she made the point, it's only been like about 16 really old people since the fall of Rome. Yeah. Like Shakespeare died <laughs> yes. four very long grandparents ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And it has been less than two Betty Whites since the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. Right. Like that's wild. That's wild. Two people's lifetimes since we were like, oh, yeah, yeah slavery, probably bad. So, um, yes, it, she was using it to put in context the fact that like all of this covid misinformation bullshit like we were like we haven't gotten better since the 1918 flu pandemic that was like one betty white ago yes yeah, like mm -hmm. we have we have not made a lot of progress in these places but there lots of them are a lot closer than we'd actually expect um, yeah. the most wild being we've only had writing as as humans for 50 betty whites which is kind of kind of bonkers yeah, that's wild. Um, I'm glad we do have writing because that allows us to do Audrey's Astrology Corner. Smooth, just like a January 17th Capricorn. 
Being a Capricorn born on January 17th, they're well known for their intelligence, discipline, and loyalty. They have an agile mind, which makes them an unstoppable problem solver when assisted by their attention to detail and appreciation for structure. It is then no surprise that they overcome challenges and meet goals with great fortitude. Capricorns born on January 17th have incredible physical and emotional endurance and grasp the correlation between mental and physical energy. They trust their intuition more than their intellect, and they continually put themselves, quote unquote, out there to prove their abilities are undiminished. Let's see if he diminishes any of his capabilities. (laughs) Okay. So we've got him born 1706 in Boston when it was at the time known as the Massachusetts Bay Colony. His father was an English-born soap and candle maker, um, and he had his father had seven children with his first wife, and then ten more with his second wife. Franklin is the fifteenth and youngest son. A lot of kids. A lot, a of, lot kids of kids. There. Fast math. He's the fifteenth of seventeen children, two younger sisters. He goes to school for just like two or three years. He learns to read very young, but he has to drop out of school when he's ten. At ten, he did what most working class boys do at the time. And that's go to work for his father. So he's making soap, making candles. After two years, he's kind of getting on his dad's nerves. He's got an older brother. In fact, he's got many older brothers, but one of them, James, Mm -hmm. says, hey, Benjamin, come to my printing shop. Printing's the future. Candle making, that's the past. Learn a a future skill. Get, Get out of the wax game. Get out of the wax game. Gotta, gotta, if you will, gotta make that paper. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. So he's, he goes there when he's 12. When he's 16, he's like, hey, brother James, I have some articles I'd love for you to put in your paper. And his brother's like, shut the fuck up. No, just go back to work and like print stuff. We're not printing anything that you write. But Ben is undeterred. He says, no, I'm going to be in this paper. And so he does this like very Bridgerton thing where he starts leaving anonymous letters on his brother's doorstep to be printed in the paper. Ooh. And he writes them under the pseudonym Silence Do Good. Silence Do Good. Do Good, yes. Ms. Do Good was a persona of a middle-aged widow. And so once every two weeks, he would leave a letter on the door of his brother's printing shop. There were 14 total. These letters became an instant and massive hit. The readers of this like small paper couldn't get enough. These letters contain the, the fake backstory of Silence Do Good, as well as some gossip from around town. And, Intrigue. And a lot of like satirical poking fun at the colonial lifestyle. It, it becomes so popular that men start writing into the newspaper to propose marriage to Silence Do Good once they find out Ooh. she's a widow. How does Ben take that news? <laughs> I know, right? Everyone around town is like tittering on about it. Can't get enough. But when... Ben's brother, James, finds out that it's Benjamin, not Silence Do Good, writing these letters. He loses his shit and beats him up. What? <laughs> into a physical altercation. <laughs> yes. You would think he would be like, don't yeah, stop. Don't it's stop. It's your moneymaker, right? Right. No. Instead, zero to fisticuffs. No time flat. No time flat. <laughs> so that's ben the strikes of- me as a, as a lover, not a fighter. I imagine this didn't turn out well for him. Here's the thing. It doesn't turn out well for him because not only is he like working for his brother, but it's actually Mm -hmm. sort of like a indentured servitude type arrangement. He has a seven-year contract with his brother that he has to stay working for him. Yes. Oh. 
So wait, so so he can't even just like leave and go someplace else and take Ms. Duguid's letters to like a different publisher or something. He's like stuck with this brother that's now pissed at him for like being so incredibly popular. Well, here's the thing. Contractually, that is what's supposed to happen. But what Ben does instead is he flees. He leaves Boston and he runs away to Philadelphia. He doesn't want to be around his brother. He's got three more years mm. left on his contract. He's he's not going to do it. But he and he like literally like flees in the middle of the night. At this point, he's 17. He's in Philadelphia. I do not know how this connection was made. But at some point, the full fucking entire governor of Pennsylvania convinces Benjamin that he needs to go to London, get some printing gear, come back to Philadelphia, upon which this governor said he would like fund the launch of a new newspaper. Benjamin, 17, is like, yeah, this is great. Okay, I'll go to London. Yeah, wait, as a 17-year-old, no idea how this connection gets made. No idea. He's just like in the right place at the right time, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Because it's not like he's coming from a connected family. Kind of his thing Mm -hmm. is like, he's coming from a working class family. Yes. Candle maker. But he somehow gets this great hookup. Okay. Cool. Goes to London. Womp womp. There's no printing press. There's going to be no newspaper. It's all a lie. This governor, I don't know what. Yeah. The governor writes him and is like, oh, yeah, it's not going to happen. Don't waste your time. Oh wait, he wasn't he wasn't like con bamboozled or anything. He he knew. Well then why would he even send him? I don't know. I, don't I have know. so many questions here. Okay. Okay. Questions we will not answer. Mm-mm. No, here is what I will answer for you. He ends up stuck in England for three years. Three years. Yep. He's out there hanging out, I guess. I don't know. Doing literally, I have no idea because I skipped over that part on biography.com. We're not not worried about what he was, how he was spending his time from 17 to 20. Okay. But he's just like carousing. Who knows? Mm -hmm. He gets back to America. He's 20, 21. And he says, I am going to establish a social club. I, Benjamin, am going to, to lead a social club and I'm going to call it the Junto Junto, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, J-U-N-T-O club. It's also colloquially known as the Leather Apron Club. The Leather Apron Club. Yep. And it was, quote, a social club for mutual improvement. Dude only went to school till he was like 10, but he is convinced that he can help others improve and they can help him improve mutually. This is his thing. Mutual improvement. Major pastime of this group, encouraged strongly by the leaders and the members, was just to read. Read anything you can get your hands on. And I mean, this is like basically how Benjamin learned everything. Anyway, he only went to school for two years. And of all the ways that you could learn how to do stuff, reading is a good one. That's how I learned most most everything as well. Yes. Preferable to TikTok, usually. <laughs> yeah. Less funny, usually, but more credible. You more gotta reliable. Trade, yeah. You have to trade credibility for humor if you really want to know the real stuff. That's why this podcast doesn't work. But frequently, yes. In our case, especially, yes. Um, Okay, so everybody's like, read, read, read. And he realizes that if you're poor, it's hard to read because books cost money and you can only read them once. And then you're like, what are you doing with that book? Are you just lining your shelves with them? No. If you want to be mutually improving each other, you need to be sharing these books, passing them around. I read this, you read that. And he decides this leather apron club is going to pool their resources together they're going to buy some books that can be shared by the community on like a quote unquote subscription model. But really what it ends up being is like the first library in Philadelphia. He ends up hiring okay. the very first American librarian, which is cool, wow. at like 21. 
Yeah, pretty solid. So, okay, so he goes to Britain. I'm, I know that there is a long history of like social clubs in London. So, my imagination here is saying that he goes, he hangs out, he sees all these cool clubs where people just hang out and like do adventure things. And he's like, I'm going to start one of those. But he makes it a book club, basically. Figure, <laughs> starts a library. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Great. Great. At this point, we're 1726 to 1730. He does some stuff with newspapers and printing. Again, real quick skim of that. Keeping it in the family business. Okay, okay. You can read about that on a more credible but less funny source. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know. You won't find it in here. <laughs> but in 1730, he's 24. This clown becomes a Freemason. And not just any Freemason. He very quickly becomes a grand master of his local Freemason club. I'm assuming that's like the top, the top guy. See, here's the thing. I assume it is. And I don't know if becoming the grandmaster is good or bad, but I feel like it really depends on how deep in the Illuminati he was at this point. Mm, mm. You know. Early days. Early, early days, days, likely. 1730. He's got his library. He also knocks a woman up. The mother's identity is still unknown. He ends up with custody of this child. He has uh, recently, common law, married his childhood sweetheart, Deborah. They never actually get legally married because she is, through the rest of her life, legally married to another man who proposed some sort of dowry to marry her, but then he didn't have it, so he fled to Barbados. (laughs) So she's like legally married to this other man throughout their entire marriage. By the way, that way of solving problems still works, just as Rihanna. Yeah, just go to Barbados. Uh, Around this time, carnival season is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But common law married to this woman. She's about 22. He's 24. Has this new baby. They bring him in. His name's William Franklin. He ends up being kind of important in his own way later on politically. At this point, he's just a baby, though, so who cares? Yeah. Over the next few years, he does a few things like publish Poor Richard's Almanac. He, at one point drafts this article, this sort of manifesto calling on the government to print more money to stimulate the economy. See no flaws in that plan. Uh, Can I goad you into the why can't we just print more money argument on the Benjamin Franklin (laughs) podcast? Always, always. I'm an easy target. I'm an easy target for this. Okay, so we know all this stuff. This is what he's doing. He and his wife have a couple kids. One dies young of smallpox. Um, It really sort of like wears on Benjamin because he had been involved in some smallpox vaccination research and he himself and other members of his of his family had been inoculated, but the baby had not. And so he beats himself up for not getting this baby what was at the time like the very best version of smallpox inoculation that could happen. So that kind of wears on him. Uh, so he's got William as a surviving son and a daughter, Sarah, as a surviving daughter throughout his life. At the same time that this is happening, Benjamin Franklin is writing a variety of other articles, manifestos, if you will. One of them that we didn't know too much about until a couple years ago was about how to become a womanizer, basically. Oh, oh. So Benjamin Franklin notably had a ton of affairs throughout his life. I read in one article, and I think it might have been his own writing. I did not take very good notes on this, but it described Mm -hmm. him as being compulsively sexual, having like a very high libido that he was even like frustrated he couldn't control. Interesting. So at this time, he's got his wife. He's sleeping around. He was like, I'm good at this. I am going to write this little 
piece that can be interpreted as satire, if you will, it's probably not, called... Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. Advice to a friend on choosing a mistress. Oh my. Okay. Yeah. He's he's like, do you remember the pickup artist thing from a couple of years back on <laughs> yeah, MTV? It's him. It's him. He's yeah. the original pickup artist guy. Did he wear did he wear the big uh like top hat and like uh like fancy a peacocking? Chains? Yeah. Exactly. Yes, a peacocking. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um and so a couple pieces of historical context here. Mistress does not always have to be synonymous with like having an affair. It can just be like choosing your mistress, like master and mistress. So mm. choosing a partner. But in this case, he actually does mean like stepping out on your wife pretty clearly okay the second historical piece of information was this was never published in his lifetime it was not actually published until the mid to late 20th century so the 1900s 200 years after it was written and it was only shared because it made its way into federal court documents uh that were cited as reason for overturning obscenity laws interesting it wasn't allowed to be published because it was obscene and so it made its way to the court this is a first amendment case freedom of expression like i can write whatever i want obscenely and it can be printed by whatever consenting publisher it's your constitutional right it's your constitutional right to tell men how to cheat on their wives okay i'm really curious because it was only published like 150 years ish later how well does his advice hold up okay uh, i'm gonna read it to you, you ready in present day yeah, yeah i'm ready so let me set the scene it's 1745 at this point he's 39 Tons of mistresses. He's traveling back and forth to Europe. Uh, his wife never goes with him because she's afraid of the water. So she won't get on a boat. And he's like, cool. The consequence of that is I'm just going to sleep with everybody else. I guess. Does she know this at the time? Yeah, or is she? Okay, time. okay. Everybody just making sure. Got it. Got everybody it. knew. Um, so he begins this article by advising young men that a cure for sexual urges is unknown. And the best and most proper solution is probably to take a wife. But assuming you have a wife who's not putting out or, you know, maybe, dear reader, you'll never marry, he continues to just sort of like belabor the point that there are advantages to marriage. And as supplementary advice, in case the recipient rejects all previous argument, Franklin mm -hmm. lists eight reasons why an older mistress is preferable to a young one. Oh, okay. Okay. Let's hear Ad these. Let's hear these. <laughs> advantages include... Better conversation, less risk of unwanted pregnancy, and, quote, greater prudence in conducting an intrigue. They're too smart to be messy at that point. Yeah. So here okay. I'm going to read from the actual letter. Here's how okay. it goes. The face first grows lank and wrinkled, then the neck, then the breast and the arms. The lower parts continuing to the last as plump as ever. So oh, that God. covering all above with a basket and regarding only what is below the girdle, it is impossible <laughs> of two women to know an old from a young one. And is as really in the, being like, just put a paper bag on this. <laughs> yeah. She'll keep it secret. <laughs> uh, and he goes on. And as in the dark, all cats are gray. The pleasure, oh, no. <laughs> the pleasure of corporal enjoyment with an old woman is at least equal and frequently superior Every knack being by practice capable of improvement. <laughs> oh, God. This is grosser than I expected, honestly. <laughs> Listen, you're going to eventually be having sex with old, an old woman. So he, this is good advice. You need to know it's going to start at my face. I'm going to get progressively uglier. <laughs> and just bust out the pillowcase. 
there's very little credit you owe this man for this for this uh book or this article. What I will say though, he is nothing if not practical. Nothing right? Pragmatic. I mean just like yeah. very ex- extremely pragmatic about this whole situation. Yeah. Um I'm going to I'm going to stop talking about his sexual urges in a second, but I just want to close out this section Thank you. by Thank by, you for that. By, I appreciate that. By reading a snippet from biography.com about his inclination for taking mistresses. And here's from the article. Franklin's libido was apparently so strong, he himself was scared of it. In his autobiography, he confessed, "Quote, the hard to be governed passion of my youth, had hurried me frequently into intrigues with low women that fell in my way. Rude. And obviously he had one child out of wedlock. It is uh, not unlikely he had more. Right now, what we know is definitely had the one. And so on top of chronically stepping out on Deborah, when he's home, if you can believe it, it's reported that he's actually kind of a terrible husband. No way. Yeah. You don't say. In his autobiography and publicly, he talks about all of the good things that Deborah was. She was a great partner, business partner. But it was pretty much well known that Deborah at some point became more like a roommate and business partner. And uh, at home, he spent a lot of time behind closed doors chastising and berating her for making like careless, silly mistakes. And then on top of that, right? So if you can imagine, he's not a great husband. He's away a lot, so he's not a great father either. Womp, womp. He's absent, like, most of his children's childhoods. He's literally across the ocean and, like, not writing home, not being interested in his kids. He had such a strained relationship, strained, not strange, strained relationship with both of his children. His daughter didn't talk to him for decades at the end of his life, when he was like bequeathing his goods to his his kids, he gave most away to like public institutions, which is fine, right? Like it's his prerogative, but he... It's just not was, a political statement about like uh, the evil of generational wealth. It's instead mm-hmm. just like, yeah, yeah, he's a dick of a dad. Got yes. That. Yes. When he is home, which is for a couple years here and there, in addition to the shit everyone knows about, right? He's in America, founding father, blah, blah, blah. He also had some strange extracurriculars or some dabblings in some strange extracurriculars. And these were not known about until 1998. Oh, so like very recently, especially yeah. in the like perspective of his lifetime. Yes. We're talking literal skeletons in closets. Literal skeletons. Oh, shit. It's 1998 conservationists are doing repairs on 36 Craven, which is the Benjamin Franklin house where he lived. And they're looking to turn this old mansion into a museum, upgrading it, doing all the work. So they're digging around and from a one meter wide, one meter wide, one meter deep pit, they find 1,200 pieces of bone. Is this dude a serial killer? That would be so fucking cool. Unfortunately, not. I mean, fortunately, not. Can you can you imagine just the movie franchises know, that that I would know. spin off? I, I would I would option that right now if I had a bunch of money to make a movie. Uh, right, but no, but no, so, no. So it's estimated that there were fifteen people. Six of them were children. The forensic investigation and dating says like, yep, this was absolutely happening when Benjamin Franklin lived here. Sounds super suspicious. 
collecting a, fucking skeletons. For a while, people were really like, oh my God, is Benjamin Franklin a serial killer? Good question. If you're a movie producer right now, uh, get in touch. I, I will write you a spec script for this. Uh, <laughs> yes, the, absolutely. From the hip. Just yeah. <laughs> right yeah. now. Hear me out. Hear me out. Benjamin Franklin serial killer versus Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter. Done. <laughs> Done. Just we got this. It's going to happen. So it's actually not that suspicious. This is the Smithsonian. Wait, wait, wait. How are you going to say it's not that suspicious that the dude has like not, 12 skeletons not, in his basement? First of all, fuck you. It's 15. Were you listening or not? <laughs> 1,200 pieces of bone. Oh, okay. But, okay. Um, it's not. It is suspicious. It's not as sinister. Here's the most plausible explanation. He was allowing his friend to run an anatomy school illegally out of his basement. Oh, oh, okay. I'm not killing people in my basement. I'm just running unlicensed autopsies in my basement. How is <laughs> this is like marginally better, I suppose. Yeah. But uh not like imagine if you had a friend and you were mm -hmm. like, Oh, this person's kind of like, you know, fooling around on their wife, whatever, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, Oh, he's also running autopsy autopsies in his basement. You're not yeah. gonna feel a lot better. You're no. not. No. So it's it's also not great because the practice of anatomy, if you can imagine, during this time was kind of like morally ambiguous. There wasn't a network of people donating bodies to science, which again, like we've talked about on this podcast, if you choose to do that, please, it's a great service to medicine and public health. But mm -hmm. this was not a practice. There were no uh, cadaver donation programs in the 1700s. No, they had what they informally called cadaver stealing programs. <laughs> so yeah, there were grave robbers and then there were murderers. There were people who legitimately murdered people, like people who were sleeping rough or like living on the margins of society would frequently be killed and then taken to these illegally run anatomy laboratories. And you're telling me, you're telling me that he is just an innocent bystander, just like accepting these bodies and not that Ben Franklin is going out and collecting people who are on the streets. Come on now. Well, here's from a Mental Floss article about this. Quote, researchers think that 36 Craven was an irresistible spot to establish this anatomy lab. The tenant was a trusted friend. So the tenant is Benjamin Franklin. The landlady was this friend's mother-in-law. And he was flanked by convenient sources for corpses. Pause. <laughs> convenient sources for corpses. Which means serial killers. <laughs> right. Continuing. Bodies could be smuggled from graveyards and delivered to the wharf at one end of the street or snatched from the gallows at the other end. When he was done with them, the scientist simply buried whatever was left of the bodies in the basement, rather than sneak them out for disposal elsewhere and risk getting caught and prosecuted for dissection and grave robbing. Yeah, sounds like some real Dexter shit. Obviously, Benjamin Franklin knew this was happening. There's no question. No one doubts that he knew about this. A lot of people don't think he was involved, but... He's a curious man. I cannot, I, I don't believe that he never just snuck down there to dissect a little himself. I mean, I can't imagine he's not like running this whole thing. Right. Think about it. Like, yeah. And, and the worst part, like, even if he is only marginally involved in chopping the people up in his basement, uh, just like... Imagine if this happened today. Now, yeah. granted, I know what we were saying. Like, okay, medical science wasn't what it was. People were trying to research. It hadn't really worked out this whole idea that, like, there could be a legitimate way to do this. But still, if you've got, like, dead bodies that you're cutting up in your basement and the police show up, 
like if your best defense is well i was like super curious what they were like on the inside it doesn't sound better no 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 so you know i think his out here would be that he is a scientist this is of scientific uh, relevance and at the time franklin was writing a lot of scientific papers or writing to a lot of scientific papers to to be very clear here because he believed that the academic societies in Europe were increasingly pretentious and concerned with the impractical. And Franklin, ever the pragmatist, wanted scientific research to deal with like the real world um, and not whatever he considered impractical. I feel like this is a little bit on the scientific journals, though, as well. Because like, if you get a letter from Ben Franklin and he's like, Dear Journal, have you ever noticed how cool a spleen looks? Like, You should be asking some questions. So it's actually worse than that. So here's the letter that one scientific journal gets in, in around this time. He reads some research they publish, and he responds with an essay. And he suggests that the research and practical reasoning be undertaken into methods of improving the odor of human flatulence. This essay goes on to discuss the different foods that affect the odor and to propose scientific testing of farting. Franklin also suggests that scientists work to develop a drug, quote, unquote, wholesome and not disagreeable, which can be mixed with common food or sauces with the effect of rendering flatulence, quote, not only inoffensive, but as agreeable as perfumes. Okay, so this dude is chopping people up, but then he's using his quote-unquote research to be like, I think we should invent Beano, which is what he's essentially suggesting. Yeah, so there's that. Uh, Also, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, about just how much much slower I bet time felt then. (laughs) How much more time people had to ruminate on things versus how sped up life feels right now and how engaged in different things people have to be like this man is like you know what i am going to figure out electricity and also i am going to complain to this academic art or this that academic art smell yeah. bad <laughs> yeah. dude was fucking bored dude he's was bored. bored he's bored he's, and he's this is of mutual improvement he's he needs to be mutually improving people throughout his life i guess you're telling me this dude who's super bored is not at some point going out and just like looking for the thrill of the hunt. Come on, I don't buy it. I'm not not saying that, but I have no evidence of it. As we know, absence of evidence, absence of evidence here is proof that he did it. Okay, I am saying Benjamin Franklin was a serial killer for the record. I, okay. am, I am convinced. Great. Take it up with... Science. The FBI. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know who to call. I don't know who to call, but I'm going to... This is my new cause. Okay, so we've gotten through some of his like lesser-known weird bits. We get to the 1750s. He's in his 40s. And the 60s. He's in his 50s. He's doing diplomatic work. He's some sort of like honorary postmaster. He is pretending to hate the short-lived Stamp Act, Right, which is the tax imposed by the British Parliament on Wait, colonists. What do you mean pretending to hate here? So I'm I'm about to explain. I got to explain what the Stamp Act is for folks who like me forgot about seventh grade history. Okay, I'm just saying you can't just drop juicy tidbits like that and glaze okay. over them. Right, Stamp Act. British Parliament decides to tax all printed materials 
text colonists for all printed materials. Colonists generally uh, not a big fan of new taxes at the time. Without representation. I mean, come on. If they had a say in it, it might be different. But Mm -hmm. he's pretending to hate it while also still be because he's like, oh, yeah, I'm a postmaster. I don't want people to be taxed for this stuff. But he is also still a part of the British government. Like he's working as a diplomat from America and England. And he like is mutually, it's mutually beneficial for him if they have more money. Yeah. It's not, there's not an America right now. He's not working for the Brits. Okay. He's also writing to the governor of Massachusetts. He's out in front. He's like, okay, yeah, we need more representation. But then writing to the governor of Massachusetts, telling him he needs to get his people in Massachusetts under, under control. And he needs to restrict the rights of colonists more. This does not bode well for him later. Okay, so people find out that he's telling the governor to restrict the rights of colonists in Massachusetts. People do not like this. He gets kicked out of whatever various committees he's on. He's booted as a postmaster. It's not a good few years for him. On top of that, his wife dies, uh, something he seemed to care very little about because he knew that she was ill. And instead of coming back to America, he was in England at the time. He just sends her letters every two weeks saying, hey, I'm going to be here a little bit longer. She ends up having a stroke. I don't even think he makes it back for the funeral. By 1775, he's back in America. Founding father, whatever. He's not back for long, though, because in 1776, when this shit starts popping off, he goes to Paris. He's in France for nine years. Sleeps around, hobnobs, Freemasons. Ostensibly, he's also there because he's trying to get the French people who hate the Brits to be like, hey, you, you should really, uh, you know... Back us in this whole, like, we're sticking it to the king yeah. thing. Yep. But really, he's spending his time air bathing, which is just walking around naked. And it's during this time that he debunks mesmerism. Do you remember mm. this little book that we had for our kid about mesmer? I remember. I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole word mesmerize is not like some ancient root word from Greek or something. It was this fucking dude, Mesmer, yeah. who was going around being a hypnotist at this time, basically. Yeah. And at one point, a government and a like, medical association put together a committee to try and either dis- like prove or disprove whether or not mesmerizing works. Uh, firmly disproved it. They said Disperse. that people had to be under the impression that they were about to be mesmerized for it to work. And uh, yeah, you can thank Benjamin Franklin for that. He's there for nine years, 1785. He gets back to America, working on drafting the Constitution, forming branches of government, snooze. He only survives five more years. In 1790, he's 84 and he dies. Just not feeling so great. Had a little gout. He's 84, which is very old in the 1700s. Yes. Interestingly enough, Franklin had actually written his own epitaph when he was 22. And here's what it says. The body of B. Franklin, comma, printer, Parentheses, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, parentheses close, lies here, food for worms, but the work shall not be lost, for it will, open parentheses, as he believed, close parentheses, <laughs> appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. A little pretentious uh, for a 22-year-old, uh, but you know what? Spend his life trying to make it come true. Yeah, I guess so. It was more of a prophecy, right? He's he's like, I'm putting together this social club and writing my epitaph, bitches. Like, you can't yeah. stop me. And for the work to continue, 
implies that we will continue discovering new things about what he was researching, including the fact that eventually we would discover that he was a serial killer. Yeah, bones, literal (laughs) bones in his basement. Although he is extraordinarily well-known for his inventions, his political prowess, a life of accomplishments far too extensive to cover in this bullshit podcast, and what a lot of people refer to as a strong moral compass, mm, wrong, Mm. it is for his deceptive and unkind treatment of his wife, his absenteeism as a father, his not very funny fart jokes, the teaching other people how to cheat on their wives, talking about old ladies are ugly, and the literal bodies in the basement. Don't forget the slavery. Oh, yes. Yes. And the enslavement of people. Benjamin Franklin is not my hero. Although, to be fair, I do like two things very much. One... Silence do good. That's good. I like that. That is funny. (laughs) I like that. That should continue. And two, unrelated to him, I fully, again, want to support and endorse the ethical procurement of cadavers for science. They are desperately (laughs) needed. (laughs) There are programs. Look into them in your area. There are national programs, local programs. Uh, Med students need cadavers. So think about it. So if you're not using your body once you're dead... Yeah, they'll give it back to you in a little box, some ashes, mm-hmm. eventually. Well, not back to you, technically speaking, but yes. What do you It'll mean? It'll get returned. Uh, yeah. If, if you're not using your own body oh, after yeah, you're yeah, dead, yeah. It'll, it'll they'll give it to, to somebody. To somebody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two good things to come out of this, this podcast. If you leave with anything, it's more anonymous gossip, please, and more mm-hmm. cadavers. Well, if people would like... To get more of this combination of uh, snarkiness and faceless snarkiness and skeletons in the closet, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep. And please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.